If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. War made the U.S. independent kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Understanding America's wars is essential for understanding American history. Welcome to Key Battles of American History, a podcast in which we discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. Here is your host, James Early. Hello and welcome back to Key Battles of the War of 1812. This is your host, James Early, as always. In our last episode, which was really more of a mini episode, Steve and I talked about some political and economic developments that were going on behind the scenes as the battles were going on in the year 1814. Now we're going to go back and resume the military narrative. So the British, as I mentioned last time, are they've been reinforced by troops from that have been fighting on the continent from Europe. They've been fighting the French, and they are kind of fed up with the Americans. They're they're tired of always playing D a defense, so they're going to go on the offense some more. They'd already gone on the offense in the north. Now they're going to take the war to the south. They're going to bring the war to some people that hadn't really seen any fighting up until this time, at least not against the British. So the title of this episode is The Gulf Coast Campaign and the Battle of New Orleans. And as I have been throughout the series, I am joined by my good buddy, Steve Guerra, the host of the History of the Papacy podcast, as well as Beyond the Big Screen podcast. Steve, you ready to go south? Yeah, I'm really excited about this. This is We're, we're really getting into the, the heat of things, you might say. Uh, that's a good pun, <laughs> getting into the heat. <laughs> As we go south. Yeah, so listener, pack your bug spray and bring some water bottles because it's going to get hot and it's going to get ugly really quickly. All right, Steve, let's let's set the stage, shall we? Yeah, so, let's in the, begin in the beginning. Begin in the beginning. The British had attacked, they had attacked New York, New England, and the Chesapeake region. And now, as I said, they are planning attacks on several locations along the American Gulf Coast. The Gulf Coast was especially attractive due to the low numbers of white Americans living in the region and the presence of black Americans, both slave and free, as well as Native Americans, whom the British hoped might join them in fighting the white Americans. There were also 800 to 1,000 Baratarian pirates who lived on Grand Terre Island in southern Louisiana, and they had been in trouble with the U.S. government. There had been conflict between them and, and the U.S. military. So the British were hoping they could kind of pick off some of these folks, you know, the, the African-Americans, the Native Americans, the pi pirate Americans, you know, Arr, maybe, maybe they can get some of those to come over to their side and really cause trouble for the white Americans. 
Now, New Orleans was the most attractive target for an attack. It had 20,000 residents, and it was the largest city west of the Appalachian Mountains. It was also the most important commercial city in the West. It had millions of dollars of goods stuck in the port. Some of these were literally just lying out on the docks because of the blockade. And taking this stuff would deprive much of the American Southwest of communication with the rest of the nation and the world. So to prepare for the upcoming expedition against the Gulf Coast, Admiral Cochrane, remember he had taken over as the British commander of the Atlantic fleet, he sent a shipment of arms to Indians in the Apalachicola River, sorry if I messed that up, in Spanish Florida, along with an agent to train them to use a bayonet. Roland Utt says this, quote, Fortunately for the United States, Britain's plan to attack along the Gulf was one of the worst kept secrets of the war. <laughs> and so it's not going to be like, surprise, you know, the Americans aren't just going to be wondering, oh, man, I didn't see that coming. Where'd they come from? Britain was not keeping it secret at all. So the Americans are going to have a little time to be prepared. For my money, it, the, the British just, they might be getting too cocky based on this at this point. But they, you know, they had some easy wins up in the Chesapeake region. And now, for some reason, they're hitting in New Orleans. And it just doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, again, it's... They had designs on the Mississippi River. They were hoping to maybe snag New Orleans, maybe even keep it. But they, yeah, you're right. They're still pretty cocky. It's kind of like a, you know, a pitcher who looks at the batter and says, "Hey, man, fastball down the middle. You ready?" <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is that they, uh, they are. They're they're going to bring it. Yeah, and, say, we're coming, and you know, you better get something. ready because we're going <laughs> to yeah. come punish you guys. We're going to come wipe you out. There's still that sense of pride in the fact that the British army was a professional army. You know, they had, they'd mixed it up with Napoleon and they'd beaten him, you know, and they, if they could beat Napoleon, surely they could beat a bunch of militia and just this ragtag group of Americans. They learned, however, in 1814 in the North that the American army is getting pretty good. They've gotten a lot better and they'd won some battles. They'd fought off some British attacks. But again, this is the South. They probably thought, well, these are a bunch of country hicks, a bunch of hillbillies that, you know, they, they, they just sit around drinking whiskey all the time. <laughs> they can't fight. So we'll see if that's true or not, shall we? Yeah. And I guess the first place we should look at is Pensacola, which is in Florida, which is not a part of the U.S. at this point, And then Mobile, Alabama, which is. Mm. Yeah, Mobile is. Pensacola is not. Pensacola is not even part of the British Empire. It it had been briefly in the 1760s through the revolution, but it, it had been originally Spanish. And then after the Seven Years' War, it was handed over to Britain. And then it went back to Spain after the Treaty of Paris, which ended the American Revolution. But they're working with the Spanish. And in fact, with the approval of the Spanish government over Florida, a force of 100 British soldiers commanded by Major Edward Nichols landed at Pensacola. Possession of Pensacola was important to the British because it had the best harbor on the Gulf and had easy access to the interior. Had a really great naval air station, too, but oh, wait, no, that's later. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> beachfront. Probably still yeah. at the beachfront. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a, good, it's a good place to be if you can get there. Yeah. So over the next few weeks, this Major Nichols, he increased the size of his force by recruiting Indians and local slaves. In September, 
Nichols marched his force to Mobile, which a, that was a former Spanish possession that the U.S. had seized just in 1813. We talked about that a few episodes ago. Mobile was protected from a sea attack by Fort Boyer, which was manned by 160 U.S. regulars. And on September 12th, a force of 225 British Marines and Indians landed on the shore near the fort. Three days later, a British naval squadron bombarded the fort. But the landing force was too small to attack the fort, and the waters of Mobile Bay were too shallow for the British ships. So the British gave up the attack. In addition, the British flagship, the Hermes, ran aground close to the American guns and had to be destroyed. That went well. Yeah. Yeah. Great news. Swing and a miss, Great Britain. Now, Andrew Jackson, who is now a major general in the regular army and the commander of the Gulf Coast region, he believed that Pensacola was the key to British activity in the area. So he decided to capture it. In late October, Secretary of War Monroe ordered him not to take the city, but the orders arrived too late. You kind of almost feel like even if they had, well, no, I'm, I'm convinced that even if they had, Jackson would have quote unquote lost them or, you know, just yeah, not, that sounds very Jacksonian. Jackson, Jackson doesn't necessarily feel obligated to obey orders. Jackson does what Jackson wants to anyway, but in this case, he didn't have an, the order. The orders did not make it to him. And on November 7th, he attacked Pensacola with about 4,100 regulars, militia and Indians. The Spanish defending force of 500 was just swept aside, and the British blew up their forts on Pensacola Bay, and they withdrew to the Apalachicola River. Jackson marched his army now to Mobile, and then on to New Orleans, which he had good reason to believe would be the next British target. I I sense that British cockiness is sneaking in again. Uh, 225 Indians and Marines, it's, it doesn't seem, yeah, it's numerically superior to the 160 regulars. But if I'm not mistaken, the rule of thumb is that you need three to one superiority to attack fortified position. And they're just yeah. not in anywhere near that strength. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know what they were thinking. But again, they probably were thinking, well, these are British soldiers. Not only are they British soldiers, they're not soldiers, actually, technically, they're Marines. (laughs) So they're tough guys. And these are just Americans. But again, they were proven wrong. And I mean, just say what you'll say about Jackson. I mean, there's plenty to say against him. But man, that guy has sand, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) He, uh, He does not have one timid bone in his body, does he? he? He He's bold, he's decisive, and he's he's very inspirational to his soldiers. He's, he's a very effective military commander. Now, Jackson was on to something. The next target was New Orleans, after all. Yeah, it really was. So New Orleans, as I said, was an irresistible target for the British. Walter Borneman writes this, quote, And again, I kind of touched on this again, but let's go ahead and let Borneman say this because he says it very well. Quote, not only was it the gateway to a river system that ultimately led to Canada, but also on its docks and its warehouses sat innumerable goods waiting for export, kept there by the British blockade. By one account, there was cotton alone worth 3.5 million British pounds. That was about $15 million, or what the United States had recently paid France for the entire Louisiana Territory. It was a veritable treasure ripe for the picking, end quote. It was kind of like snatch and grab, right? You know, it's like these guys that 
smash through a window and grab a bunch of jewelry and run off. I mean, the British, if nothing else, they could they could get this cotton, yeah. haul it off and sell it for fifteen million dollars. That's pretty good. Not bad for a day's for, work, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So Jackson arrives in New Orleans and he finds the city to be poorly prepared for an attack. While in charge of the city, our old buddy James Wilkinson, one of the oh, greatest. Wilkinson, I'm shaking my fist right now. I know. <laughs> I just want to put it, go back, make it go back in time and punch him in the face. Uh, <laughs> one of the worst scoundrels in all of American history. He had wasted the public funds under his control when he was in charge of New Orleans. And in addition, the French and Spanish residents of the city who made up the majority of its population did not want to serve in the militia. Also, there was an increasing lack of cash in the city. So thank you, Wilkinson, for Wilkinson. this legacy of <laughs> extremely lousy leadership. But Jackson's arrival made a huge difference. He started by surveying the area, and then he ordered all the water approaches from the Gulf, blocked, and he established batteries at key locations around the city. He also set up a highly effective intelligence system to warn of any approach by the British. And then he issued a proclamation demanding that everyone in the city help with constructing the defenses. He said this, quote, those who are not with us are against us and will be dealt with accordingly. Again, classic Jackson. Yeah. Do what I say or else I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> One resident of the city wrote this, quote, General Jackson electrified all hearts. Electrified, that can mean good and bad, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm thinking electricity in the, in the sense of he energized people or, or he shocked them or he... Or he know. threw the toaster in the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's a good one. All right, so Louisiana Governor William Claiborne called out the militia, and soon troops steamed into the city, streamed into the city, or they might have steamed as well, who knows. Jackson appealed to free black men to enlist in the regular army, and he also accepted the services of a unit of black volunteers, mostly from Santo Domingo, despite the objections of Claiborne. You know, Jackson, Jackson gets uh, criticized a lot for being racist and for owning slaves. And, and that's all true. But here he is recruiting black men into the army that with, they had not been allowed to serve in the U.S. Army. But again, Jackson doesn't care about the rules. He just wants to win. He wants to do whatever it takes. To, he makes the rules. He makes the rules. Yeah. And he, whatever it takes to defeat the British, he'll take anybody. As we will see in my next point, the Baratarian pirates, remember them? Arr. They led by Jean and Pierre Lafitte, very famous pirates. They also volunteered to help Jackson, despite the fact that an American naval force had destroyed their base on Grand Terre Island in September. Jackson, he wasn't real wild about the idea at first, but he did accept their help because they knew the lay of the land well. They knew the sea approaches to the city. And Jackson, over time, actually came to like Jean Lafitte. And he liked him so much that he eventually made him his unofficial aide-de-camp, you know, kind of one of his uh, chief of staff, if you will. So, again, Jackson's flexible. Then, on December 5th, the British assault force arrived at the Florida coast. Their original plan was to land at Mobile and march overland to New Orleans, but they changed the plan in favor of a sea attack on the city. They reached Cat Island, which is 80 miles northeast of New Orleans, on December 13th. This position gave them flexibility, because from there, they could attack from the east via Lake Bourne, 
from the north via Lake Pontchartrain or from the northeast on land over the plain of Gentilly. Wow, Jean Lafitte and Old Hickory as best friends. I mean, if they haven't made a buddy film of that, they need to start working on it right now. Yeah, they really do. Uh, that That's, uh, like I said, Jackson just, he wants to win and he'll do whatever it takes and he'll hire whoever he needs on his team, so to speak, to bring about a victory, even if they're not necessarily the kind of people he would have dinner with. <laughs> Looking at things right now on paper, how did the British's um, chances look in this campaign right now? British chances look very good. They've got a huge force, that's a huge army that's coming, which greatly outnumbers Jackson's force, although Jackson's force is growing every day. So it's in the British, it's in the British best interest to get there as fast as possible. And they've got the British Navy too. You know, they can British Navy can help out by not only by bringing the troops over, but by occasionally blasting the American position using their cannons, although they're going to find that's not as easy as they think it is. So yeah, at this point, if you were a betting man, you would probably go with the British. But then again, as history often shows, it's not usually a good idea to bet against Andrew Jackson. No, it sure, it sure isn't. And so then we're we're moving into we get we have some kind of initial skirmishes here before we get a little bit further down the line. What are some of the first actions that we see? James here, and now a brief word from our sponsors. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, the Americans have some troops kind of in advanced positions uh, ahead of the city, so to speak. The British fleet in the Gulf lacked enough small boats to operate further north. 
Plus, the Mississippi River was too narrow and it was too twisty for safe navigation. And the entrance to Lake Pontchartrain was defended by Fort Petit Coquille. So Cochrane chose to attack through Lake Bourne, setting off on December 13th. Now, the British fleet was initially blocked by an American group of five gunboats with 185 men. This is another classic David and Goliath story here. To destroy this force, the British sent 45 boats commanded by Captain, yeah, nine to one, commanded by Captain Nicholas Lockyer. Although the British boats were smaller than the American ones, they had more guns and they carried 1,200 men. This kind of almost reminds you of the story of 300, right? You know, the. Yeah. Uh, it's, these, these five gunboats and 185 men, they're going to take one for the team. And as you can imagine, the overwhelmingly large British force defeated the Americans, inflicting 40 killed. That's 40 dead out of 185. That's almost a fourth. That's wounded, too. They were all 40 weren't killed. Some of those were wounded. And they captured the rest, and they destroyed their boats. But still, the small American squadron inflicted 94 casualties on the British, and they, more importantly, they delayed the British advance on New Orleans, which bought precious time for Jackson to prepare the city's defenses. After this, the British built a base on Pea Island, 30 miles from New Orleans. The accommodations they built were primitive, and the men suffered through many cold and windy days. The British then sailed across Lake Bourne to Bayou Bienvenue, and then to Bayou Mazan. Then, on the 23rd of December, they marched along a canal to Jacques Villers' plantation on the Mississippi River, only eight miles below New Orleans. A British advance force of 1,600 occupied the plantation home, but Villers' son escaped, and he ran off to the American lines, and he warned Jackson that the British were coming. You think he was yelling, the British are coming, the British are coming. Nah, probably not. <laughs> but, but he's part of that intelligence network that Jackson had set up that I talked about earlier. Now, Jackson wanted to stop the British before their full force arrived, and so he sent 1,800 men toward the plantation. The Americans were supported by two warships. And these are not little tiny gunboats this time. He's got a schooner. The schooner was called the Carolina. It had 14 guns. And he had a sloop, the Louisiana, with 22 guns. And at 7.30 p.m. on the 23rd, the Carolina fired on the British camp. Then Jackson ordered the army to attack, catching the British by surprise. The ensuing battle, which occurred in darkness, was chaotic, and there was much friendly fire. When the battle ended... The British had suffered 275 casualties and the Americans 215. All right. Over the next two days, British reinforcements poured in, including the overall commander of the expedition, General Edward Packenham. The original commander was going to be General Ross, but as we saw, General Ross was killed outside Baltimore. So Packenham takes over. He was the brother-in-law of the Duke of Wellington. Ooh, and, ooh yeah, very proud of it. Now, Packenham's got 4,000 men by this time, and his army, as I mentioned earlier, greatly outnumbered Jackson. But Packenham did not know how much he outnumbered Jackson, so he did not press his advantage. This allowed Jackson to withdraw to a more defensible position two miles from the British. And over the next several days, the Americans built earthworks along a canal between a swamp and the Mississippi River. American ships in the river fired on British lines, while American sharpshooters picked off many British soldiers. Packenham ordered hot shot to be fired against the American ships. A hot shot is just uh, ordnance that's heated up really, really hot. So it, when it, like if it lands on a wooden ship, it'll catch things on fire. 
And or if it lands, say, in the powder magazine, it'll really cause a lot of damage. It'll, it'll cause an explosion. And sure enough, the Carolina was blown up, but the Louisiana got away. All right. So Jackson's playing it pretty well. You know, he attacks when he can. And, but when he realizes he's going to be outnumbered and crushed, he, he backs up kind of like good old George Washington. What do you think about this? The options for the British don't seem to be quite as wide open as they thought at first. They seem to be kind of hemmed in into a certain course of action. Yeah, they they thought they would have a lot more flexibility than they did. But they, again, like I said, they weren't able to they weren't able to use Lake Pontchartrain. They weren't able to go up the Mississippi, so they were kind of forced in the Lake Bourne option. And then, of course, the Americans slowed them down. And and Jackson, as we've seen, uh, he's not just going to sit back in New Orleans and wait. You know, he's going to go on the offensive and he's going to harass them. He's going to surprise them. Kind of reminds me of another Jackson, Stonewall Jackson in the Civil War. He used to say something along the lines. I, I won't get the quote exact, but he said something like, always mystify, mislead and surprise your enemy. And I think that's what Andrew Jackson is trying to do here. Catch him off guard. Yeah, that, I was just I, that's what I was thinking is that he's ca- he's catching them off guard by not just playing defensive and hiding in new orleans he's hitting them some and yeah and but not engaging in the big battle right yeah the british want this big decisive battle and jackson's not ready to give it to him yet and, and like we saw he's harassing them with sharpshooters and he's having a couple of ships you know shell their camp and so yeah it's turning out to be a lot harder than the british thought it was going to be not to mention the swampy terrain and and we've already seen there's bad weather, which is demoralizing the British troops, and I'm surely making a lot of them sick as well. The the Americans are using a lot of combined arms, too, with the Navy supporting the army. Was that sort of thing common in European-style Napoleonic warfare? Yeah, it was to a certain extent, and we've seen it in this war, too. We saw a lot of the fighting up in the north when the U.S. Army and the Navy would work together on Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, especially Lake Erie. Yeah, the Americans seemed to be pretty good at this. The the commanders generally got along, not 100% of the time, but yeah, they, they made a really good team, very effective. Then we move on to another engagement at Rodriguez Canal. What yeah. was um, and but which was it slowly leading us to um, I mean, big shock to the Battle of New Orleans. Yeah, <laughs> didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, this is another one of those preliminary battles that you talked about. December thirty first. Now this is eighteen fourteen, of course. Peckingham he ordered. This is the naval commander. He ordered the British one. He ordered a large number of heavy guns brought from his fleet. And he used them to establish four. I'm sorry, this, that's, this is Pakenham. I'm sorry, I've, I misspelled it. This is the overall army commander. Pakenham, Wellington's brother-in-law. He ordered a large number of heavy guns brought from his fleet, and he used them to establish four new artillery batteries. To protect them, he placed them behind casks of sugar that were filled with dirt. But the casks were not tall enough to fully protect the batteries. And on the next day, which was New Year's Day, 1815, the batteries launched a bombardment of Jackson's lines. Peckingham, I keep saying his name wrong, Packingham, I'm sorry, he hoped the barrage would destroy the American defenses, but most of the rounds either overshot their targets or they absorbed harmlessly into the earthworks. I think we've mentioned that before. Uh, that's the beauty of earthworks. It's, it's just a fort where the wall is just made out of dirt and mud. And 
when you're firing a cannonball at a masonry fort, it blows the bricks and the stones into tiny bits and just often makes a big hole in it. But when you shoot it at earthworks, the cannonball just kind of goes, just kind of gets stuck in there. You know, like, I don't know what to compare it to. Like, you well, I think if you throw want, a rocket silly putty or something, it just sticks. If you look at modern warfare, where they use sandbags, and a sandbag is only about a foot wide, maybe a little bit more than that, um, then don't hold me to the metric conversion. But that stops just about any small arms fire. And right. if you're talking about 10 feet of dirt, there's no way a, a cannonball, you know, the cannonball probably only goes maybe a, a, a few inches into there. Yeah, we saw an early battle uh, up in the old Northwest several episodes ago where the Americans not only had earthworks that stopped the cannonballs, but you remember they would dig them out and put them in their own cannon and fire them back at the British. Yeah, the cannonballs aren't even deformed. Right, yeah. Uh, that, that They don't fire them back here, but they don't have time. But But they do respond with a barrage of their own, and they knock out one of the British guns. The British begin to run out of ammunition while the American barrage increased in intensity. And again, that's just another classic thing. When you're when you're the attacker, especially if you're coming from a long distance, this was essentially an amphibious assault. And you have to bring all of your supplies with you. You know, the British can't just go over to the local ammo shop and buy some more cannonballs and more bullets, right? They have to bring everything. And when you run out, you're out. You know, you have to Hopefully, maybe some supply ships will arrive eventually, but they're having to come a long distance, whereas the Americans are getting them locally, or at least if not locally, not from very far. They don't have to bring them across the ocean. And so when the British guns finally did run out of ammunition, their crews withdrew them. This action called the Battle of Rodriguez Canal, or sometimes just the artillery duel of New Orleans, the British took 75 casualties to the Americans, only 35. But at the same time as this, additional British reinforcements arrive, bringing Packenham's force up to 6,000 men. Also, Admiral Cochrane ferried 600 men across the Mississippi to the west side. Okay, now, yeah, here's it's time for a mental map. The Mississippi is really twisty, essentially north to south, but you have a west bank and an east bank. Jackson's forces are on the east bank, okay, and that's where the, the main British attack is occurring. But what the British are trying to do here is ferry these 600 guys across the Mississippi, put them on the West Bank, march them up there, overcome the American defenses there, and then they can just fire along the American line. They can do what's called, or at least the plan is for them to be able to engage in what's called enfilading fire. Whereas you're firing, it's hard to explain, like you're just going right down the line. Does that make sense, Steve? Instead yeah. of firing, instead of firing perpendicular to the line whereas you're you're firing and the geysers just spread out from le left to right in front of you you're firing parallel to the line you're just like imagine what one cannonball could do it just takes out person after person after person after person that's the plan they want to and maybe even get behind jackson's position and as as is always true in warfare if you can get behind your enemy at the same time that part of your force is in front of your enemy it's all over for them and now you mentioned that they were, the British ran out of cannonballs and they are getting a ton of reinforcements. 
but then you also mentioned that the logistics were uh, were strained. How how bad was their logistics situation at this point? James here, and now a brief word from our sponsors. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Well, it, it, it as far as in general, it was good. But again, the, the problem they faced is they had to bring their stuff from so far away. You know, they, you know, they, if you're going to go to war against another person, another army, you have to bring your stuff with you if you're the attacker. So, and as I mentioned earlier, once you run out, you're out You're in, until a supply ship comes. But unfortunately for the British, there's not going to be any supply ships coming. They, they're bringing more men and some supplies, but not enough. So is that it? We're done? Or do we have a little bit more? Oh, we've got more. We 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 haven't come to the the climatic battle yet. Here comes Oh yeah, the Battle of yeah. New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. We still gotta do that. Packingham is not done. He's he, he may be running out of ammo and stuff like that, but he's not completely out. So his plan, as I mentioned, there was to send a group of guys across the Mississippi. They're going to led by a man named Colonel William Thornton. They're going to attack the American position there, defeated by only 700 militia. Once he had defeated the militia, Thornton would turn the American guns toward Jackson's main force across the river. Then at dawn the next day, Packenham's main force, about 5,300 strong, would march in three columns across Chalmette's plantation to attack Jackson, who had about 4,700. Now, there you go. See, this is Maybe some of this British overconfidence again. Packenham's got 5,300, but Jackson's built his force up by now to 4,700. So it's it's not even two to one, let alone three to one. But again, Packenham was relying on the fact that he could get some guys on the other side of the river and 
do that inflating fire that I mentioned earlier, or even possibly get behind Jackson. So let's talk about that attack, that, that diversion, that side attack. Thornton's attack, it was delayed, and it did not begin until dawn on January 8th. So, so much for being able to do it in the darkness and having the element of surprise. Thornton did seize the American guns, but the bane of British attack had stalled, and Packenham ordered him to withdraw. So Thornton actually kind of accomplished his, his mission, but because it wasn't coordinated, because the main attack was delayed, he Packenham orders him to pull back. About the same time that Thornton's attack began, the main British army also attacked. So the British are just marching forward against this fortified position. Think Pickett's charge almost. I mean, they're they're just, it's a full-on frontal assault, and they don't have enough guys, and Jackson's men are very well dug in, but he's gonna do it anyway. This is the British Army. You know, we don't we don't retreat, we just attack. Now, the British army at first was covered by a fog, but the fog lifted and the soldiers became totally exposed. When the British were 500 yards away from the American line, American artillery opened up with grape shot and canister. And again, that's like little balls inside of a shell. So it's, it, it turns a cannon into a giant shotgun. It's, it's devastating at close range. When the British were within 300 yards, riflemen began firing on them. And when they were within 100 yards, American muskets opened fire. The combined American fire absolutely decimated the British attackers. An American later wrote that, quote, the atmosphere was filled with sheets of fire and volumes of smoke, end quote. One British veteran of the Napoleonic War stated that the American fire was, quote, the most murderous I have ever beheld before or since, end quote. That's really saying something, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, it sure is. I fought the French army for several years, and yet this is even worse than anything they sent at us. So the Americans positioned behind strong defensive works went nearly unharmed. On the American right, British troops reached the American line, but they were quickly driven off. And before long, most of the attackers were either killed or wounded. Many simply hit the ground or fled. Packenham tried to rally them, but he was hit by a cannonball and killed. One of his subordinate commanders, General Gibbs, was also killed. And after Packenham's death, Major General John Lambert took command of the British Army. Almost immediately, he halted the attack. The field was covered with dead and wounded British. One officer reportedly said, quote, These damned Yankees can pick a squirrel's eye out as far as they can see it, end quote. And that is the end of the Battle of New Orleans. The Battle of New Orleans was the bloodiest and most lopsided battle of the entire war. In just 30 minutes, the British suffered nearly 300 killed, 1,200 wounded, and 500 captured for a total of about 2,000 total casualties, 2,000 out of their original force, which is like 5,300. Wow. Yeah, that's more than, well, it's almost 40%, which is an incredibly high percentage. By contrast, the Americans lost only 13 dead, 39 wounded, and 19 missing or captured. So 71 casualties in all. Let that sink in, listener. The British had 2,000 casualties. The Americans had 71. One American soldier present at the battle wrote this, quote, it was like a sea of red, not because of the blood, but because of the number of red coats lying side by side. One could walk on the bodies of the dead without touching the ground, end quote. And over the whole New Orleans campaign, December 23rd to January 8th, the British suffered a total of 2,450 casualties, 2,450. 
compared to only 350 for the US. I mean, we're talking like seven to one, roughly. I may be a little off on the math, but that's that's a ballpark figure there. This was one of the greatest disasters in British military history. Nevertheless, the British held their position for 10 days, engaging in a few skirmishes with the Americans and even conducting a bombardment of Fort St. Philip, which is 65 miles downriver from New Orleans, but it was indecisive. Then on the 19th of January, they began their withdrawal. By February 4th, they were gone. I mean, Jackson really did. He sucked them into the exact battle that he wanted. That, exactly right. It's a good way to put it. I mean, it's just incredible. Do you put this all on to Jackson's skill or were there some fortune involved? Well, I mean, I think there was some fortune. Think about how, for example, the, the British overall commander was killed very early in the battle. You know, had he lived, perhaps he would have done a better job of rallying the troops. But I still think the British would have lost in any situation. Again, it's kind of like Pickett's charge in the Civil War or the Battle of Fredericksburg or, or like the, the charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimean War. It's just you're the British were conducting a full frontal assault, had to march a very long way across a wide open field against a foe that is dug in behind very good defenses. They have cannon, they have rifles, they have muskets. I mean, they've got they've got the whole kitchen sink there. They even had ships. Well, the ships were not really all that active by this point. But but yeah, I I just think that I, I would give Jackson most of the credit. Yes, I think he, he did a terrific job of, like you said, going forth, probing, harassing them, and then gradually falling back, falling back, falling back until he was in a position that he that was extremely strong. Do you think that this was a doomed cause for the British, this whole campaign? Or was there maybe a way they could have pulled something out of it? It seems to me like maybe it's it was just a, a bridge too far that, like you said, they everything had to go really exactly for them to take New Orleans and get that that jewel. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it was kind of a bridge too far or a city too far in this case. I Everything had to go exactly according to plan. Like I, I, One thing I didn't mention is that one of the generals was responsible for taking ladders up to the American position, and they forgot the ladders, so they had to go back. And that, that's another thing that didn't certainly didn't help the British. But I, I think this, I mean, I'm not saying there's no possible way it could have worked, but I think it would have taken a near miracle to succeed. As good as the British were, they were very good. But the Americans, the Americans are fighting on their home turf. They, they know where the canals are. They know where the swamps are. They know the land. The British don't really know it. And they've got pirates on their side, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the prize was, was worth it for the British. But I just think that what they would have had to have spent on to get New Orleans was way more than what they probably really ever thought they would want to have to pay for that. Exactly. Yeah. Now, we're not quite done. We're really, we're done, but the British have a little bit left in them. What, what happens next? Yeah, this is the denouement. This is the kind of the, the <laughs> wrapping up, so to speak. Having failed to take New Orleans, the British decided to try again to take Mobile. You know, it's like, doggone it, we're going to take something before we go home. By February 7th, 
They had surrounded the fort on three sides with warships. They put several thousand soldiers on the shore and they'd placed several cannon within 100 yards of the fort. And as the British bombarded the fort and prepared siege works, the American garrison, which consisted of only 375, fired upon them, but he inflicted very few casualties. And this is not going to be a Cinderella story. This is not, you know, St. Peter's College defeating one of these big powers. On, on the 11th of January, seeing that his situation was hopeless, the fort's commander surrendered. And so, you know, who knows? This could have gone somewhere for the British. But right after the engagement was done, the British received word of the Treaty of Ghent, which brought peace. The Gulf Coast campaign and the entire war was over. We're not done yet, though. What do we have coming up? Yeah, we're done with military campaigns and battles. Too bad. You know, I'm going to miss them. But, but we'll come up with some more in the future for another war. But yeah, we still have to talk about the Treaty of Ghent. So that's what we're going to do in our next episode. We're going to not just the treaty itself, but we're going to go back in time a little and talk about the entire long peace process because the Americans and the British, as we mentioned quite a while ago, they started trying to end the war almost as soon as it broke out. And there were negotiations, both formal and informal, going on almost throughout the entire war. So we'll look at the process of how the two sides tried to make peace and then kind of strung each other along and negotiated in bad faith sometimes. It's a long, messy process, which finally culminates in the treaty. It takes them you know, more than two years to get it, to get it done. So that is what we'll be doing. We'll be doing a little bit of diplomatic history next time. Join us as we see the long process culminating in the Treaty of Ghent and the end of the war. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Key Battles of American History is a proud member of the Parthenon Podcast Network, which includes several other podcasts, including History Unplugged by Scott Rank, Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy by Steve Guerra, this American President by Richard Lim, Eyewitness History by Josh Cohen, and Vlogging Through History by Chris Mowry. If you haven't already, I strongly encourage you to check out these great podcasts. If you would like to support this podcast and help it to grow, there are four things you can do. First, you could subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on the podcast player of your choice. This helps other people to find the podcast. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially helpful. Second, join our Facebook group, American History Fanatics, where we discuss the episodes of this podcast, as well as other topics related to American history. Third, tell as many friends as you can about the show. And fourth, you could join the elite unit called Early's Raiders by going to patreon.com and searching for key battles of American history. There are five different levels of support to choose from. Each level allows you to have early access to ad-free episodes. Higher levels bring additional benefits, including bonus episodes and even the ability to commission episodes on topics of your choosing. Before I close, I would like to give a shout out to the current members of Early's Raiders. Thanks to Majors Chris C., Anna Concepcion Castro, Brandon Cuckler, Mike Leslie, Bob McCullough, Melissa Mueller, Doug Pergram, and Jacob Thomason. Captains Ryan Apashian, Blue Ridge 201, Alex Calabrese, Alex Coombs, Grant Holmstrom, Jeff Henley, Stephen James, Jose Martinez, Tim Moon, Mike Rollison, David Santee, and Michael Severino. And to Lieutenants Patrick Brennan, Sean Burrell, Matthew Christensen, Ronald Cohen, Craig Didier, Roger Douglas, Scott Hendricks, Hoosier Daddy, David Lueza, 
and Jeff Sabo. I greatly appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to Key Battles of American History. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast catcher. And please be sure and spread the word about the show. If you can spare a few minutes, rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. This greatly helps us to reach more listeners. And for show notes, maps, and further discussion, visit our website at www.keybattlesofamericanhistory.com. Thank you, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode of Key Battles of American History. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.